everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Talk Recorded live.
read that verse from the bottom of that page there. It says, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot in that verse. As a person could just sit, just think about that one verse and dissect it word by word and just think about it. That's like a treasure chest right there of so many things to think upon. Uh, Randy, why don't you read that verse for us one more time, that same verse. Very God. Okay, Tammy, won't you read it again? Brittany, won't you read it again? Randy, won't you read it again, please? Tammy, again, please. Read me again, please. Okay. Let's go in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, God, in Jesus' name, we thank you, God, for this verse. Thank you, God, for these songs. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for your peace that you offer to us. Thank you, God, for sanctification. Thank you, God, for preserving our Holy Spirit, soul, and body until the day of your return. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to gather here together with like-minded believers brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, our family members, our spiritual family, we have brought together. We thank you, God, for the wind, for the breeze, that it's not raining, for the sunshine, for the warmer weather. Thank you, God, for our cars to get here today, the gas to get here, for the food that we have here, for the cold drinks we have here, for our chairs, for everything you have provided for us. Even though we may not physically be the richest people in America, that spiritually we are among the very blessed in the whole planet. That we're among among your body, a blessed people, a holy and superior people, a holy nation unto you, a sanctified and set apart nation sanctified and set-apart people, a sanctified and set-apart body. 
thank you, God, for calling us, choosing us, for choosing us as the elect, for choosing your people to be filled with the Holy Spirit of all tongues, of all nations, all across the world. Thank you, God, for calling us. Thank you, God, for this Sabbath service. I ask God that you be blessed in it, that you be sanctified in it, that you be exalted in it, that you be glorified in it, and that, God, you would help me, Lord, to deliver the truth, help us to go deeper into your word. And as we are tested more, as the days, weeks, months, and years go by, as we are tested more, that we will pass the test, that we will examine and prove all things, that we won't rely totally on man's word, but that we will search the scriptures, that we will search the Holy Spirit, that we will fast, that we will pray, that we will seek truth passionately, that we become a people of passion. We pray, God, your will be done. We pray, God, your will be done in this. I ask you, God, for your help today, Lord. It's this this sermon, God, that you've brought to my attention today, God, you know, is a going to be a major test. And I just put it in your hands. Trust in you, God, to lead the way. The word is yours. People are yours. The church is yours. It's all yours. In your hands, God, ask God your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Maybe see it. Start in Leviticus 23. That's the third book of the Bible, Ex, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 23, there's the list of holy days, feast days, starting with the Sabbath. We kept Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread recently. And we're quickly approaching the day of Pentecost on May 24th. It ain't going to be long now. Very, very, very fast approaching. I lost count. I was doing 25, 24. I'm not sure if I did 23 on Facebook or not. It's probably 21 or something. I lost count. But it's fast. It's coming soon. Right around the corner. I can't wait. We're going to get some balloons. 
thing. I don't know what kind of food we're eating, but we're going to have the bread of life. We're going to have the word of God. That's the best food we can have. Leviticus 23, in verse 4. It says, these are the appointed times of the Lord. It's not the appointed times of the Jews. It's the appointed times of the Lord. Holy convocations, meaning commanded worship days, commanded uh, coming to services is commanded. People don't know or understand that. Not preached. But these are commanded days, commanded services, holy convocations. That's what that word convocation means in the Hebrew. Which you shall proclaim at the times appointed for them. There is a time appointed, not just choose which day. Time appointed. Verse 5. In the first month, talking about what people say the Hebrew year, which is really God's year, God's created count. In the first month of that year, which is comes about March, April, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, meaning uh, that can mean sunrise or sunset. It can also mean from the time between noon and sunset. It can mean a lot of different things, but if you compare that other scriptures, we know that's talking about sunset in this particular case. Sometimes it means sunrise or sunset or even any time in between those two things or even the time between sunset and complete darkness. It can mean that as well. But again, if we compare that to Deuteronomy 16, I'm not going to turn there now, but you can put a note in there if you want to. If you compare it to Deuteronomy 16, verse 6, we know in this particular verse, it's talking about sunset. So in the 14th day, which is already the 14th day during that verse, and then it comes sunset, it's when you keep the communion, the Lord's Passover. And then it talks about, in the next verse, the 15th, and so on, to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So... We, we've already observed these things, and we're, now we're going forward toward Pentecost. But I need to take a step back today, or even a step forward, and explain some things I've not really touched based on. They're, they're not usually taught, um, especially in the churches of Babylon, of course. And I've refrained from teaching some things because... Uh, everything's going to be taught at the right time, the right place, for the right people. And there was even some things I wanted to go back and re-examine again, study, read, pray about, and really be for sure about. And now that I've done all that, and it's the right time, the right people, the right place, and things need to be expounded about. And so we know we kept Passover recently, three or four weeks ago, whenever it was. Now let's go to the book of Numbers, Chapter 9. Numbers, Chapter 9, which is just the next book over. Numbers chapter 9, verse 1. 
Thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying. So this is not the same year that they came out of Egypt, but the very next year. This would have been the second Passover that they was going to have. They held the first Passover actually in Egypt, and this would be actually the first Passover outside of Egypt. Verse 2. And it was in the first month, so this would be Passover. Passover month. Verse 2. Now, God saying this, says the Lord spoke to Moses. Verse 2. This is God's word. This would be in red letters if we was to do red letters in the Old Testament. I think that would be a good idea. Verse 2. Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. We just read about appointed time. Verse 3. On the 14th day of this month, at sunset, you shall observe it at its appointed time. You shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its order. So Moses told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. And they observed the Passover in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, at sunset, in the wilderness of Sinai. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. Verse 6. But there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person. Now today, we don't become unclean by just touching the dead. That's a spiritual, ritual, ceremonial thing. It was symbolic. Uh, God was using circumcision, goats, lambs, animals, sacrifices, uh, burnt offerings, and touching dead people, clean and unclean animals. All those things were things that God used to teach basic principles, teach the people, like you teach a little child, certain things, the only way the child could understand at the time. These were things that they could understand at the time until we matured in Christ. So we don't have to worry about touching the dead anymore or clean unclean animals, circumcision, clean on the ghost. But at that time, it made the people symbolically and spiritually unclean. So it says in verse 6, but there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person, so they could not observe Passover on that day. So they had to be clean. They had to wash their hands. They had to wash their body, all these rituals. And they had to be, which represented being sinless. But today, we don't have to wash our bodies to be sinless. We just have to be under the blood of Jesus and repent and live a holy life to the Lord. But they couldn't keep Passover because they were symbolically unclean. Remember, we're not supposed to take that bread, that wine. We're not supposed to take that communion if we're not saved. We're not supposed to take that communion if we're not ready. We're supposed to examine ourselves, make sure we're ready. These people were not ready. Take that Passover. We're not supposed to take it if we're not ready. They were not ready. So they could not observe Passover on that day. So they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, Though we are unclean because of the dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the sons of Israel. 
They want to serve the Lord. They want to be obedient to the Lord, but they couldn't because of circumstances, situations beyond their control problem. Verse 8, Moses therefore said to them, Wait, I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. So the Lord sought Moses. In verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 10, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any one of you or your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person, or he's on a distant journey, he just simply can't keep the Passover at the appointed time because situation, circumstance. He might be too far. He may, however, observe the Passover to the Lord in the second month. Not the first month, but the second month on the 14th day. One month later at sunset. One month later to the day, they shall observe it, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until the morning. These are the same way it was it should have been done in the first month, but now they're doing it the second month. All the same details and instructions. They're just doing it one month late because of circumstances. Verse twelve, they shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it, according to all the statute of the Passover they shall observe it. But the man who is clean and is not on a journey and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person should be cut off from his people, but he did not present the offering of the Lord at his appointed time. That man will bear his sin. And if an alien sojourns among you and observes the Passover to the Lord, according to the statute of Passover and according to his ordinance, so shall he do. You shall have one statute for both the alien and the native of the land. So it's not just for Jews. This is also for Gentiles, also for people who were not Israeli. So right there... It was never just for Jews, was it? It was never just for Israelites. It was also for the stranger or the alien, or what we call today, illegal aliens. That's what it's talking about. It was never just for the Israelites. So we see here what, what it doesn't say it like this in the Bible. We, we usually call this second Passover or second chance Passover. And guess what? That's today. Today is the 14th day of the second month, May the 2nd in the Roman calendar, 2015. So today is second Passover, second chance Passover. Now, we don't need to do that because we've already taken it. We don't have to take it twice. We don't have to repeat what's done. It's done for us. But if we had had some people to come along train now and then, we could have had Passover with them. We could have communed with them. We could have had the bread and wine foot wash and all with them to accept them in our family and God's family. We could have done that today. Uh, if for any reason that they couldn't have done it with us the first time. Uh, so there is, today is the second day of May. This is second Passover, the second chance Passover. God is the God of second chance. He is. And I'm thinking of second resurrection as well. If we don't make it in the first Passover, there's a second Passover. If we don't make it in being covered 
under the blood the first time, we can make it in covered under the blood in the second resurrection. God is the God of second chances. It calls it the first resurrection. There's got to be a second resurrection automatically. Now let's get into some more details that I've not covered yet before. Now that we're in the midst of the Holy Day season, we've kept Passover. Today is second Passover. We're quickly coming to Pentecost. This is the time and season to study these scriptures. And so let's go to two Chronicles, book of Second Chronicles. Just a little bit over to the right, about an inch or so, or half an inch to the right. Look at Second Chronicles, chapter 29. May not be 29. Let's see if you got. No, chapter 2. Two Chronicles, chapter 2. Second Chronicles. Maybe it is. Let's go there. Yeah. Let's see if that's No, chapter 29. I'll get right in a second. Yeah, chapter 29. Second Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 1. I'm wrestling with the wind. Tell us about what happened with Hezekiah. Chapter 29, verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. Now, these names are uh, corrupted because of the Masoretic text and because of uh, the uh the Syrian Targum translation uh, translated in the days of Babylon. Nevertheless, verse 2, he did right in the sight of the Lord, Hezekiah did, according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, this would be Passover month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. They, the, the house of the Lord, the temple, had been closed closed because of uh, uh, the Assyrian invasion. The the Assyrians had come in, invaded the land, taken away the people off to distant lands. They had corrupted the house of God, and the people had stopped worshiping God, and they had started worshiping the Assyrians even more, the Assyrian gods, and the Assyrian language had come in, all kinds of corruption. 
Nazarian. Verse 4, he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the squire on the east. Verse 5, and he said to them, listen to me, O Levites, consecrate or sanctify, cleanse yourself. What that means is to wash yourself, take a bath, and get holy into the Lord. Clean your clothes, clean your skin, take a bath, scrub yourself, wash your hands, and stop sin and repent. Sanctify yourself. Now, and concentrate also, or sanctify the house of the Lord, and the, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out of the holy place. Carry out these Assyrian idols and things that have been placed in there. Clean the house of God and clean yourself. Verse 6. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath for the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made a object, made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, talked about the Assyrians, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now, it is in my heart to make a covenant, an agreement, with the Lord God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now. Do not neglect now. For the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and burn incense. Now look at verse 30. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asphalt, the seer. In other words, the book of Psalms. So he ordered the ministers, the Levites, that would be ministers, to sing praises from the book of Psalms. So he said, they sung praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. Then Hezekiah said, now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings and all those who were willing brought burnt offerings. And the number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs, all these were burnt offerings to the Lord. Uh, Look down to verse And there are also many burnt offerings for the fat of the peace offerings for the 
expectations for the burnt offerings. Thus, the service of the house of the Lord was established. They had to bring in, they had to clean out the house, the temple, and they had to bring in uh, new supplies, the animal sacrifices, and had to begin again. Verse 36. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people because the thing came about suddenly. Now Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Now they had not been keeping Passover for a few years. There had been rebellions. But here he reestablishes the temple and he reestablishes the Passover. Verse 2. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. So this is second Passover. We never take only one verse. We always look for other verses that talk about second Passover. So, or whatever we're talking about, a second verse to clarify and make sure we understand. So, they had just started cleaning the temple. They had just started doing things again. It took time to get everything back in the order it was supposed to be. So, they come to the second month, and they're keeping Passover in the second month. Verse 3. Since they could not celebrate it at that time of the first month, because the trees had not concentrated themselves in sufficient numbers, nor had the people been gathered to Jerusalem. So if, remember, if it's a distance, if they're not there yet, then you could wait for the second month. So some people is not at Jerusalem yet. Some people hadn't finished doing the uh, ritual cleaning yet. Uh, everything needed to get in order. Verse 4. Thus the thing was right in the sight of the king and all the assembly. And so they established a decree to circulate a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, that they should come to celebrate the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not celebrated it in great numbers as it was prescribed. And the couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the hand of the king and his princes, even according to the command of the king, saying, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, Israel, that he may return to those of you. Return to him that he may return to you, to those of you who escaped and are left from the hands of the kings of Assyria. That should be a lesson to us today that we need to return back to God, start keeping the Passover and all the holy days again, that God will return to us and that we may escape the hands of the Assyrians. Verse 7. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a horror as you see. Now, do not stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield, surrender. We sang that song two different times today. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and serve him in his presence. Daily live, I surrender all. I surrender all. All today, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And a lot of people will say that they will surrender all to God that they live holy. God, and we say, 
Spirit of God of peace sanctify you wholly. All of you, the entire, we talk about being made whole. We can't just have one foot in the door of the world. Totally surrendered, surrendering all. Putting God first in all things. Following the will of the Lord, not following our own way. This says, but yield, surrender to the Lord. And enter his sanctuary, which he has concentrated forever, and serve the Lord your God that his burning anger may turn away from you. For if you turn, return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So the couriers, these messengers, passed from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh were two of the 12 tribes. In fact, Ephraim is the forefather of the British Commonwealth, the British people, England, even Australia, South Africa, those, all those nations that at one time came under the British Commonwealth. And Manasseh is the ancestor forefather of the United States. So right here in this verse, Ephraim and Manasseh is talking about the forefathers of America and Britain. And as far as Zebulah, the other tribe, but they... But they all, they laughed. Here they get the word of God. Come keep Passover. And they laughed at these messages. A lot of people laugh at us today for keeping Passover. But they laughed to scorn and mocked them. Nevertheless, some men of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves. They yielded. They surrendered. They humbled themselves. They bowed unto the Lord and came to Jerusalem. Verse 12. The hand of God was also on Judah, which is the ancestor of that little nation in Israel today that they call Israel. They are the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes. Verse 12. The hand of God was also upon Judah, the Jews, to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Now, many people were gathered at Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. It's the second Passover. They didn't just do Passover by itself. They did the whole thing, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, too, in the second month, a very large assembly. So a lot of people did end up coming. And they arose and removed the altars which were in Jerusalem, I'm talking about the pagan altars, the Assyrian pagan altars, which is Christmas and Easter, those come from Assyria. Trinity, all those pagan things that come from Assyria, they moved them out. And they also removed all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. Verse 15. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th of the second month. That's on that's today. That's on the second Passover. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed of themselves and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. And they stood at the at their stations after their custom according to the law of Moses, the man of God, and the priests sprinkled the blood which they received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not concentrated themselves. Therefore the Levites were over the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was unclean in order to concentrate them to the Lord. Well, they shouldn't have been there in the first place 
if it hadn't been ready and consecrated. But nevertheless, you're always going to have some people to come who shouldn't be there. So what they did was they sprinkled the blood of the Lamb for all the people. Verse 18, for a multitude of the people, even many from Ephraim, England, and Manasseh, United States, Azachar, and Zebulon, had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord God, may the good Lord, pardon to give everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, and the Lord God of his fathers, though not according to the purification rules of the sanctuary. So the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And the sons of Israel, the sons of Israel present, present in Jerusalem, celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with great joy. It is a time to celebrate these feast days. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day after day with loud instruments, to the Lord. It wasn't a quiet event. It was loud instruments to the Lord. Then Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who sowed good insights, showed good insights in the things of the Lord. So they ate for the appointed seven days, sacrificing peace offerings and giving thanks to the Lord God of their fathers. That word ate for seven days is talking about it's not just eating unleavened bread, but it's talking about how it's a feast, how we have the night to be much observed, and there's a feast that day, before, and it's a time of uh, uh, commemorating the feast day. Verse 23. Verse 23, then the whole assembly decided to celebrate the feast another seven days, for a total of 14, 14 to 15. So they celebrated the seven days with joy. So it became a revival. It became, they became so passionate about it. And that, that's a lot of times is the, the attitude of somebody when they first get saved, when they first come to the truth, how all, get all passionate about it. So they're like, not only are we going to keep this seven days, let's just keep going. They, I mean, they had a revival, a revival broke out. But Hezekiah, king of Judah, had contributed to the assembly a thousand bulls, seven thousand sheep, and so forth. All these things for for the, the service of the Lord and for the people and for the sacrifices, the food, and so forth. Now let's go to Exodus 23. Exodus 23. Uh, second book of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus. Exodus chapter 23, verse 14. Verse 14. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast. Now, we have seven holy days, 
that there's three time frames of the year that we do this. We have the very first holy days, Passover days, unleavened bread. Then you have 50 days. Then you have Pentecost. That Pentecost is your second season. And then your third season is in the fall when we have trumpets, atonement, and feast of tabernacles all in one month, for the seventh month. So you got three times a year, three seasons of holiday seasons. And so the three times a year, you should celebrate a feast to me, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. Talking about Passover and unleavened bread. Seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the appointed time in the monthly bid, that's first month, but we know that you can do it in the second month, if you have to. For in it, you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. What's happening here in these three times a year, and the reason it breaks it down to three times a year in this verse, is that there were three pilgrimages that the people would make. Because that the temple, or the tabernacle of Moses, and these things were standing. Uh, but it, it doesn't matter. Rather, and we're going to read some scriptures here in a minute that will show you it doesn't matter whether the temple is standing or not. There are some people who say, well, we don't have to do the holy days no more. We don't have to do the pilgrimages no more because the temple doesn't stand. There's nothing that's saying, there's nothing in the scripture that says the temple must be standing or that if the temple is not there, you don't have to do it you don't read either one of those cases in the Bible. The Bible doesn't give any of those situations. You don't have to do it based on the temple. There are times in the Bible we're going to read that it don't even have to always be Jerusalem. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to keep these days. But what's happening here is a pilgrimage where people are coming to a specified location to worship the Lord, just like we come to this specified location on the Sabbath day to worship the Lord. And so on these pilgrimages, they were traveling, and they would come to the Lord, and it says, None shall appear before me empty-handed. And what that's talking about is giving the offering to the Lord. That when we, when we go on these pilgrimages, that we're supposed to bring an offering to God at that time. Not just goats and lambs, but also free will offerings, food, provisions for the feast, food and provisions uh, for God, for his people. Verse 16, also you shall observe the feast of harvest of the first fruits. That's talking about Pentecost. Pentecost is known by the Feast of Weeks, Feast of Harvest, First Fruits, Feast of First Fruits, different names. So it goes from unleavened bread being your first pilgrimage, the second pilgrimage being Pentecost, fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field, also the Feast of Ingathering. The Feast of Ingathering is another word for Feast of Tabernacles in the end of the year, in the seventh month. Uh, in gathering into your booths, into your temporary tabernacles, into your campsites, motels, and so forth, in that time of year. It says, and at the end of the year. 
when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. It's talking about, it relates these things to harvests because the holy days picture and teach us about the first harvest and the second harvest, the first resurrection and the second resurrection, the first chance resurrection and the second chance resurrection. And it relates, it puts a lot of this in the terminology of working out in the field, working in the farm, working in the harvests, because that is the way that the people worked in that day and time. That's the way, that was their income, that was their livelihood, that's how they survived, that's, that was their mentality. They were farming people, shepherds and so forth. And so God spoke to the people in a way and a manner that they would understand and a way and a manner that was relevant to them in that day and time. And in a way and a manner that even foreshadowed what Jesus talked about. So many of the parables of Jesus, he talked about how the kingdom was like us working in a harvest and in a field so many times. Again, picturing the resurrection, the, the first fruit harvest and the second fruit harvest, the spring harvest and the fall harvest. Then in verse 17, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. It's talking about having to travel to the location. And, that, and it's not just the males, it's the females too and the children, but it's specifying the males there because of the head of the household having to show up before the Lord, giving the Lord an offering of their field, of their produce. Verse 18, you should not you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. So it's talking about doing that. Uh, how to do the details there. Um, let's see. Let's read, read verse 18. 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the, joy, the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. So it wasn't just the leftovers or just what we could scramble up at the bottom of our pocket or the bottom of the field or the, the, the weltered fruit. It wasn't just trying to get by and say, oh, I'll just bring something to the Lord. It had to be the choice. It had to be the best. It had to be the first and the best. Are we going to give God our leftovers? Are we going to give God just what we can, just what we feel like, just what we choose to? Or are we going to give God the first and the best, the choice, first fruit of your soil into the house of the Lord your God? And you are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. And behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So he prepares a place for us to have service ahead of time. Verse 21, be on your guard before him and obey his voice, the angel that leads the way. You know what this is talking about? Pastors, ministers, Moses, Aaron, Levites. It's talking about people that set up a place ahead of time to prepare and then lead you there. Shepherds, minor shepherds. 
the word angel there can mean a lot of different things. That's one of those words that has multiple meanings. It can mean messenger, uh, uh, representatives of the Lord. So it can mean a lot of different things. Verse 21, be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Ammonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hevites, the Dibbitites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds of those pagan people. But you shall but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillows in pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. So there is a promise that if the people was to go where they were supposed to go, give the best of their offerings, and follow the leaders, follow the angels, follow the leadership of God, and follow where even the spiritual angels send the people, and not follow the pagan gods, don't do Christmas, don't do Easter, and even destroy those pagan halters, serve the Lord, then God will take care of the rest. But God will bless our food. That God will bless the bread and the water. That God will make provision, make a way, and even heal us and deliver us. God will take care of it. If we do our part, He'll take care of the rest. We don't have to be, I can't do it, because God won't, you know, we don't need to be like the Israelites without faith, without trust, thinking that we can't do this because that God won't provide. We have to trust in the Lord that God provides if we give our best to God and obey and just do what He wants us to do. Now, people are going to ask, and I have asked, and I have examined myself and sought the Lord and sought the Lord on this. Are we supposed to still keep the pilgrimages? Should we still uh, do a, a traveling uh, to go somewhere else, leave our home, and go keep the Feast of Tabernacles and Pentecost and Passover, go somewhere else to do these things? Should we do that or not? Is that bringing, if I was to say we need to do that, is that bringing the people under bondage? Is that bringing people back under old covenant? Or is it obeying God? And is it what God still wants us to do or not? Well, any time we ask these questions, we need to ask, we need to dissect the situation. We need to ask whether it's circumcision, clean, unclean needs, tithes, Passover, Holy Day, Sabbath. If you want to determine if something's still intact or not, these are what we need to ask. We need to ask, is there anything in the New Testament that expressly does away with it? Says it straight out. That it's gone, it's done away with, such as circumcision. 
the New Testament plainly says circumcision is gone. Killing of goats and all that stuff. Even clean and unclean meats, it says it expressly. It says it straight out. Thus he declared all foods clean. It says it straight out. People still try to argue it, but it says it straight out. And it says there still remains a Sabbath rest. If you read it in New American, if you read it in Greek, there still remains Sabbath rest. But if you look at Greek, it's talking about the observance of the Sabbath. It's not just trusting in Jesus. It's the observance of the Sabbath. And if you read it in Greek, it says it straight out. The Sabbath is still there. So is there anything about uh, the holy days that says it's completely done? No. Paul said, let us keep the feast. Didn't he say that? And he was talking about unleavened bread, was he not? He said, let us keep the feast. Not with unleavened, not with uh, malice and whatever all he said, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he teaches the feast. What about pilgrimages? Is there anything in the New Testament that expressly says you no longer have to travel to keep the feast? Well, in Zechariah 14, even though this is Old Testament. Zechariah 14 says, it's talking about after Jesus comes back and he's in Jerusalem, it says all nations must gather together to Jerusalem. Does it not? So if the Feast of Tabernacles is still intact, even after Jesus comes back and he's ruling in the millennium and there's a pilgrimage commanded in Zechariah 14 in the future, then is the pilgrimage done away with? I don't think so. So there's nothing that expressly does away with it. We have a scripture for Zechariah 14 where the pilgrimage is still commanded for the Feast of Tabernacles. And if it still exists, if the pilgrimage still exists for the Feast of Tabernacles, then are we supposed to say, well, it's still there for the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's not still there for Pentecost? It don't make sense to me. If we're going to keep the holy days, we're going to keep all the holy days. We can't just take one out, and we can't say, well, one's a pilgrimage and not, and the other one's not a pilgrimage. Either, either, either all three are pilgrimage seasons, or they're not pilgrimage seasons, one or the other. Then the other question we must ask about anything, about whether it's still intact or done away with, is what was the spiritual principle behind it? What was the purpose behind it? For example, circumcision. What was the principle? What was behind God doing that, commanding circumcision in the first place? It was symbolic, ritual, ceremonial, to represent uh, a division between his people and the Gentiles, the heathens that were not his people, that were not following him, that were worshiping false gods. It was a physical representation that it's hard for us to understand that in our mind frame today. But we know that the New Testament talks about how that we are now circumcised in the heart. And he is not a Jew outwardly, but one inwardly. So very clearly, the spiritual principle behind circumcision is fulfilled with the Holy Spirit, is it not? The spiritual principle, the reasoning behind circumcision is no longer applying to us in a, a need. There's not a need to be circumcised. 
because the spiritual principle is fulfilled in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes care of it. The blood of Christ takes care of it. But what is the spiritual principle behind the pilgrimage? The spiritual principle and the reason that the pilgrimage was commanded in the first place, and we're going to read more scriptures, but the reason behind it in the first place was God wanted his people to come together as a group, as brother and sister, as a family, gather together for fellowship, come and worship him, to worship him at a point of time, at a point of place, to keep a holiday. And does not people travel for Christmas? People travel for Christmas, the people travel for Easter, and they'll come out of state and they'll travel hundreds of miles and many hours and they'll drive many hundreds of miles to get there. It's a camouflage or what a counterfeit of God's true holy day. So I don't see how the new covenant does away with the pilgrimage. There's still the, the same spiritual principle, the same spiritual reasoning behind the pilgrimage is still there today. That God wants us to gather together in a worship camp and be with one another, help one another, and be together as a group. So I don't see how that has changed. At the end, once we understand that we need to go somewhere, it's like we can go to Panther Creek Park. I'm not saying we've got to go to Jerusalem. We can go to Panther Creek Park. We can go to a different part. We can go, you know, wherever that after we pray and fast and seek the Lord, where, God, do you cut your name for this particular feast? And then go there, you know, as a group, as a family, and, and have a campfire and campfires and singing and, and joyful singing with the Lord, you know. It'd be a great thing if we do this. Great thing if we do this. What is the fruit of doing this? That's another question that we should ask about anything, about whether something is still intact and still not intact. What is the fruit if we do this? Well, if we command people to come and be circumcised, that's going to run people off. It's not going to fulfill nothing. It's not going to help nothing. It's not going to benefit nothing. It's not going to edify nothing. But if we have pilgrimages, if we say, if we put on the Internet, I saw the light ministry is hosting the Feast of Tabernacle. And I've done that before. I've hosted the feast and had people come from out of state before. And people are looking right now is when people are starting to look where they're going to keep the feast. And if we was to host the feast of tabernacles, we could provide a service for those people of a place to go to where it's not Hebrew roots focused and, and, uh, and focusing on Jesus. We could really provide a service. And what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? What is the whole purpose of having services and having a ministry in the first place is to point ourselves to God, point others to God, and to serve one another, to help one another. We could help people by keeping it. So it's good fruit. Nothing bad come out of it. Only good fruit. So these are the questions we must ask about things. But then the other part about the pilgrimage is not coming before the Lord empty-handed. Now, yes, people bought, brought grapes, they brought corn, you know, whatever. They brought food back then because that was their barbering items. The, the, the trade industry at the time back there, they didn't go to work at McDonald's. 
They didn't go to work at a furniture factory. They didn't go to work at a real estate office. They worked in the field, and they traded food and supply that way, bartering. And so people will look at this, and they will look at the subject of tides, which we'll get more into in a minute, and they will say, but tides was food. Well, yes, it was food, but that was their money. That was their industry. That was their employment. That was their barbering. That was their way of life. Our way of life today is working a nine-to-five job or Sunday morning. Going, you know, Whatever we do today, that's how we should serve the Lord today in however industry we're working in today. So it's not limited to food, and we're going to see more scriptures that prove that too. If we do this, if we do a pilgrimage, let's do it all the way, not half-heartedly. And so, let's see where we go from here. Let's go to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16. Verse 1. Observe the month of Abiyah, that's the first month, and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God. In the month of Abiyah, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock of the herb, herd in the place where the Lord chooses to establish his name. Does it say it has to be Jerusalem? No. Does it say there has to be a temple standing? No. It is a place. It doesn't specify the place. We, we, in fact, it says it's over and over in other verses and other books. It many, many, many times use that same expression in the place. That leaves room for Morristown. That leaves room for wherever, you know, in the place where the Lord chooses to establish his name. Verse 3, you shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat with it unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. You came out of, of the land of Egypt in haste so that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt or out of Babylon. For seven days no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory and none of the flesh which you sacrifice on the evening of the first day shall remain overnight until morning. You are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns which the Lord your God has given you to have the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. So it can't be in the same town. Where we live. Unless we actually live in the town that God chose us to, you know, because did when they was having a pilgrimage at, uh, when they was having a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, was the residents of Jerusalem required to leave town? No. So if you already live in the town where God has placed His name, you can stay in that town, but you still need to leave your house so that you can be in a different location for the feast. 
But if you don't live in that town, if you don't live in the same town that the feast is being held, you do need to leave whatever town you live in and go to the town where all the people of that region. So if we have a feast in Morristown, then people from Greenville, from Newport, from Cosby, from Knoxville, all come to the place where God has established his name and come together as a family. We're in Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16, verse 6. That's the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. And again, like I said, it doesn't say Jerusalem. Over and over and over, it uses the same expression in different chapters, different books. Uh, chooses to establish his name. You shall sacrifice the Passover in the evening at sunset at the time that you came out of Egypt. You shall cook it and eat it in the place where the Lord your God chooses. In the morning you are to return to your tents. In six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Now that word solemn is kind of misleading. If you really study that word in the Hebrew, it really just means formal. It doesn't mean sad. It means formal, a formal, a designated, ordained time, a formal assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Verse 9. You shall count seven weeks. That's what we're doing now, leading up to Passover, counting 50 days, which is seven weeks for yourself. You shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. In other words, the first Sabbath, if we study this out intently, all the verses, all the scriptures, is talking about the first Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread. Verse 10, then you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks. That's talking about Pentecost. To the Lord your God, with a tribute of a free will offering in your hand. It don't have to be 10%, 20%, just a free will offering unto the Lord. It says, remember that verse while ago, that we shall not appear empty-handed. A free will offering of your hand, which you shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you. So, the amount is based on how much the Lord has blessed you. In other words, how much you are able to, according to your provision, the provision God has blessed you with. If God has blessed you with little, you give little. If God has blessed you with much, you give much, according to your you're able to do. Verse 11. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and a Levite who is in your town and a stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your midst in a place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. So it's a, it's a great gathering of people. Verse 12, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall observe the Feast of Booths, that's tabernacles, seven days after you have gathered in from your trash floor and your wine vat, and you shall rejoice in the feast, in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. In seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place where the Lord chooses because the Lord your God 
will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be together, altogether joyful. God will make a way. And notice here, among these people in verse 14 are some really poor people who are usually in need. The orphans and the widows. It also talks about strangers here. And so, for, and your servants, even your servants, poor people in your midst. Now, how are these, how are these poor people going to travel? Well, the scriptures explain. The scriptures are going to explain, we're going to read some scriptures, how the poor people can travel, how the poor people can travel out of state or into another town in order to keep the feast. God makes a provision for all these things and how it works. Verse 16, three times in a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the feast of unleavened bread and at the feast of weeks, Pentecost, and at the feast of booths, tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So again, they bring a free will offering on the holy days. And every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Amen. Let's uh, look at chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 22. Now, people ask, how can I afford to get off from work seven, eight days, three times a year, and go somewhere else? And especially if the closest place that is in agreement and uh, is the right place to go, might even be out of state for some people. How can they afford to do this? The Bible tells us how. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow. It's not saying give all your produce. It's saying tithe all your produce, meaning give a 10% of everything. And our produce today is not apples and oranges. Our produce today is the money that we earn from working at McDonald's or wherever we work at or whatever kind of employment that we have. That is our produce. That is our fruit. That is our increase. That we are to give a 10% of all that we do from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. People say, this is food, this is food, we don't have to do it. But again, that was the way that people lived then. We don't live that way now. Is it done away with because we don't live that way? Is it done away with because that we don't have a farm? No. The spiritual principle, the reason it's talking this way is that was the economy of the time. Our economy today is money, dollar bills. Verse 23, you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where you, he chooses to establish his name the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. If people keep the holy days, they will learn the fear of the Lord. Verse 24, And if the distance is so great for you, so that you are not able to bring 
the tithe, the fruits, the vegetables, the food, the physical food, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you, when the Lord your God blesses you, verse 25, then you are to exchange it for money. People don't like to read that part. If you can't bring a truckload of food with you, bring money. They don't like to read that part. And bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires. Now, is this talking about your normal tide that you always give anyway? No, this is a different tide. See, the churches of Babylon only teach one tide. That's the only thing they know. They don't know that there's a second tide. They don't know that there's a tide that you give basically to yourself, but it's to God, to the service of the Lord, in order to keep the feast days. How can we afford to go to the motel? How can we afford to do the countdown? How can we afford to take eight days off of work at the Feast of Tabernacles and do this three times a year by saving back 10% of your income. What is 10%? People are like, I can't afford to do this. If you have $100, 10% is a $10 bill. If you have $200, 10% is a $20 bill. It ain't that much. Now, it might be a lot of money if your income is 2000 3000 4000 a month, whatever, you know. If you have that kind of income, then being a chunk, a chunk of a thousand or 10% of a thousand is a hundred dollars. Two thousand dollar a month income is two hundred dollar tithe. But if you're making two thousand dollars a month, can't you give two hundred to save back to make sure that you can keep the pilgrimage of the Lord and obey the Lord and serve the Lord and be obedient to the Lord? I don't see that it's that big of a problem, but a lot of people make a big deal out of it. But everybody, I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people try to make a big, big deal out of anything where they're going to see that it's going to take an effort or that it's going to take a sacrifice or a change in lifestyle that they can't, they can't order pizza so often or they can't eat out so often or buy such and such or whatever, you know, or cut down on their spending. Why do we post that first? God in obedience to God and his will and his direction, his instruction, his commandment, or I want to buy this and I want to buy that and I want to do this and I want to do that. God makes a way if we're obedient. If we're obedient, God's like, here's how you do it. You put other 10% other than your normal tithe toward the feast day. And notice this ain't talking about only the Feast of Tabernacles. I was taught in World Life Church of God that you do the second tide for Feast of Tabernacles. But when I'm reading this now, it doesn't specify that it's only for Feast of Tabernacles. It's talking about all three times a year. It's talking about if you save back 10%, this ain't, you don't, this second tide, you don't give to the church. This second tide, you put that in a savings account, a checking account, envelope, whatever, and you save back an extra 10% out of all your net income of the 
that you're saving back for all three holidays a year so that you can do all this. And that once you get there, you can enjoy yourself. You can have a feast. So verse 25, you shall exchange it for money and bind the money into your hand and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses. Verse 26, you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, for sheep, for wine, for strong drink, for whatever your heart desires. Now, we can't carry that too far and say, well, I can buy pot, I can buy drugs, I can buy this, I can buy needles, I can buy all that. Of course, we can't do that. But whatever is acceptable to God, decent things, that we can go and have a merry heart, that we can go and have a really nice dinner in a nice restaurant and have a glass of wine. We can do that. It says so. And we should compare this verse 26 with Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Hold your finger there and and compare it. Colossians chapter 2. The New Testament, after Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians. Philippians, Colossians, or something like that. Yeah, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 2, verse 16. Colossians, chapter 2, verse 16. Right before 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in recording food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day. People think that this verse proves you're not supposed to keep the holidays or you're not, not required to. They don't do that at all. It actually proves you should keep the holy days because Paul is talking to the church at the town of Colossians that he's saying to the church, the people who are keeping the holy days, don't let one judge you in doing this. Don't let people judge you for going to the pilgrimage, for keeping, for having money for food for having the the glass of a strong drink, for having wine on the feast days, new moons and the Sabbath days. That's why it's saying it proves that we can go and do this. And again, here's a New Testament scripture for keeping the holy days. Now, it's not saying we're supposed to be a drunkard. It's not saying we're supposed to be an alcoholic. But it's saying we can go and keep the holy days and enjoy ourselves. Now going back to Deuteronomy chapter 14.
Deuteronomy 14, verse 27. Also you shall not neglect the Levite, talking about the ministers, who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. Meaning that the Levite tribe was not given a piece of land. They didn't have farming land. They weren't expected to do farming. They were expected to work in the ministry for a time. That was their job. They worked in the temple. They worked in the tabernacle of God. Their work entirely was to be focused on God and the service of God. So it's like when you go to keep these pilgrimages, use some of this 10% that you save back all year, not only for your food and your motel, your travels, your gas, and your needs and, and, and gifts for one another, whatever you want to do, however you want to use this money during the feast days, but also for the ministers uh, because they need it also for the work of God for the feast days. Verse 28. At the end of every third year, you should bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and should deposit it in your town. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, an alien, an orphan, and a widow who are in your town, shall come and eat and be satisfied in the order that your Lord your God may bless you in all the work that your hands shall you do. So in verse 22 to 27, you've got what is called the second tithe. We've got the first and second harvest, the first and second resurrection, the first and second Passover, and now we've got the first and second tithe. Second tithe is to be used for all the feast days. Second tithe, you don't give no one, you give it to yourself, you save it back, use it for the feast days, and also give a part to the ministers and to help others to come keep the feast. But in verse 28 and 29, you've got a third tithe. You don't pay third tithe every year. Third tithe, you only pay only on every third year out of a seven-year cycle. Because you go into chapter 15, it talks about the sabbatical year, how every seven years you release the servants, you release the slaves, you release the debt, and every seven years everything is released. So it goes in a seven-year cycle. So third tie only goes on the third year and the sixth year, every third year of a seven-year cycle. Is this still required today? Let's ask all these same questions that we did with the pilgrims. Is there anything in the New Testament that expressly removes this and says this is done away? We see Paul spoke against circumcision, against killing of goats, and so forth. We see that God plans needs, all that. Is there anything that says no pilgrimage, no tithe, no first tithe, no second tithe, no third tithe? I don't see anything that expressly does away with any of these things that we're talking about today. Then what was one of the other questions? What was the spiritual principle behind it? What was the purpose of that particular law? Is there anything ceremonial, ritual about this? I don't think so. What was the purpose of the second tithe? Well, let's go over all three tithes. What was the purpose of the first tithe? To take care of the house of God, the ministers, the Levites, or the work of the Lord. The second tithe was to make the sure that you could go to all three pilgrimages 
take that time away from your normal routine and normal income and all that and have the food you need, the gas you need, the provisions you need, everything you're going to need for that time, as well as helping others, the orphans and the widows, to get there too and to take care of the Levite that he could get there too. What is the purpose of the third tithe? The third tithe is to take care of the poor, the orphans, the widows, the strangers, the aliens, to take care of the people in need. Is that done away with? Is, it, is, is there no longer, because of the blood of Christ and because of the Holy Spirit and because of the new covenant, no longer any need to take care of the widows and orphans. What is pure religion? What does the Bible say is pure religion is to take care of the orphans and widows, right? So the New Testament says we're still supposed to take care. Why is the whole purpose of ministry is to take care of the poor, the needy, the lost, the afflicted, to lift up the feeble need? The whole purpose of everything that we're doing is the same thing that it's teaching in the first, second, and third time. So how is it done away with or removed? The need is still there. The need for the first time is still there. It, it's not taken care of by the blood of Christ. The need for the second time is still there. It's not taken care of by the blood of Christ. The need for the third time is still there. It's not taken care of by the blood of Christ. What is the fruit that would come from it? Is there any evil fruit, bad fruit, that would come from giving a third tithe to the poor, the needy, the widows, the orphans, those in need? What would be the bad fruit from it? I don't see how any bad fruit would come from it. So it stands up to the test of these questions that we're asking. Let's look at uh, Matthew 25. Verse 31, Matthew 25, verse 31. Hey, let's see. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Remember the strangers about the feast? Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and gave you this drink? And when did we feed you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it, one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which he is eternal, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment. It is eternal punishment. It's eternal death. Eternal punishment is different from eternal punishing, but the righteous into eternal life. So, we see very clearly that we're supposed to take care of the people in need. There would need no need for food stamps. There would be no need for Social Security, Disability, SSI, any of these things from the government of man if the church would do their job. If people would give all three tithes, the first tithe to the church, the second tithe to themselves to the feast, and the third tithe to the church to take care of the needy. See, the church, and I've been guilty of this, tries to fit all the needs of the ministry in one time. That's difficult to do. And, you know, all the needs, the feast days, the work of the ministry, this and that, this and that, all the different things that I saw the light ministry does, taking care of the poor, the needy, the hungry, and the sick, all under one tie. When God has provided a more complete system, a more complete ordained system, financial system structure for the church. Speaking of tithes, let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. People say there's not any New Testament order to give tithes. I beg the difference. Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, verse 20. verse 20, the last verse of chapter 6, Hebrews 6, verse 20. 
says, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Achaziac. For this Achaziac, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, when did Abraham live? He lived before Moses. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all was before Moses was ever before him, born. So this is well before Mount Sinai. This is well before the Old Covenant. And King Mekhaziak met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetual. Who is this? That's Jesus. It can't be anyone else. Different denominations, preachers, try to say it was not Jesus. They try to twist it and explain it away. But who is priest perpetually? Who is without, spiritually speaking, you know, Mary and Joseph were just uh, basically step-parents in a way. He was without beginning. He existed before Joseph and Mary was even born. But made like the Son of God. Who is he? He's Jesus. Verse 4. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choice, the best, spoil. And it doesn't say that it was food only. Of all the spoils, it had said in the previous verse. So that would include those, sever everything that they touch. Verse 5. And those, indeed, are the sons of Levi who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tithe from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tithe from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promise. Does it say these things are done away with? No. And who was Abraham paying tithe to? Was he paying tithe to an Old Testament Levite priest? No. Jesus, under the order of Mechaziac, was not an Old Covenant thing. Remember, these are hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, before Mount Sinai. Abraham paid tithe to Jesus. Verse 7. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. The author of the book of Hebrews, whoever writes the book of Hebrews, is saying, and this was written decades after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Decades after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does this man who's writing this say, Tithes are no longer done. What does it say in this verse? It's on the subject of tithes. It's talking about tithes. Wouldn't this be the verse that he would say, this is done away with? 
that this is gone. This is no longer intact. But he doesn't say that. In fact, men in this day and time, decades after the resurrection of Jesus, were still paying and receiving tithes. It's right here. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. In other words, it's still happening. He's not talking about King Kaziak receiving tithes in that particular sentence. He's talking about mortal men, the Levite priests of that day and time, were still receiving tithes, and he doesn't speak against it. So verse 8 says, In this case, mortal men receive tithes, present tense, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is written that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, even the priest who received the tithes, paid the tithes. But he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis, basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. For when a priesthood is changed, from Levite to Melchizedek, of necessity, there takes place a change in the law also. And people jump to assume, take it out of context, and try to say that proves that all law is done away with. That's not what it's saying. The whole context is that there is a change in the law that says the priest must be a Levite tribe. They must come from the tribe of Levite to be a priest. That is the law that there's a change in. That law has to change in order for the Mechaziac priesthood to be established. Verse 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. Jesus was not from the tribe of Levite. The law had to change to where from Levite to Melchizedek. That is the law it's talking about. It's not talking about a change in tithes. It's not talking about a change in anything except for the priesthood, from which no one has officiated at the altar except for Jesus Christ himself of that priesthood. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a Jew, a tribe, with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So in other words, Jesus has taken the place of all the Levitical priesthood but it doesn't say that we no longer pay tithes. And if that was true that we no longer pay tithes, it would say so expressly right here. This would be the prime opportunity to proclaim that, and it doesn't. In fact, it says that Abraham had paid tithes to Melchizedek, and that men still were paying tithes at this time. And the New Testament says that we should follow after the faith of Abraham. Did Abraham pay a tithe because Moses said so? No. Abraham paid a tithe because it showed kingship. We paid uh, taxes 
to the United States government because we are a citizen of the kingdom of the United States of America. Who we give our taxes to shows who is our king, who are we citizens of. Are we citizens of the United States? Yes, we pay taxes. Are we citizens to the kingdom of God? Yes, we are faithful and loyal citizens of the kingdom of God. We show our servitude. We show we take part as active, loyal citizens of the kingdom by giving our tithes to our king Achaziah. Abraham didn't do it because Moses and Mount Sinai. He did it because he recognized this as his king. And he brought forth a tenth, which was what was supposed to be done to the king. He recognized it as king, kingship. And so your tithes represent kingship. Do we no longer have a king? Do we no longer have a kingdom? Do we no longer have any law for our kingdom? No longer have any financial uh, provision for our kingdom? Do we no longer have any uh, financial provision for these things? People would say, yes, we do have financial provision. It's give whatever you want to of your heart, of your own choice, not of commandment, not grudgingly, but just whatever you want to give. Well, if that's so, <laughs> we're doomed. I mean, we are doomed if it's going to be based solely upon what you want to give. It don't have to be 10%. Because I'll tell you this, that those that actively preach against tithes would still be against it if it was 9%. They would still be against it if it was 5%, because they would still be saying, it's not a requirement. Give whatever you want to give. They would still be against it, regardless of what percentage it is. It's not a matter of percentages. They're saying that all law is done away with, that this was only food, and none of those accusations, none of those excuses live up to the test of what is the fruit? Is it expressly forbidden or not? Is there any new covenant examples of it? Which there is right here. You know? So their accusations and their excuses does not live up to the test. Let's see. Let's go to... One Corinthian Verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Now, we read in the Old Testament about how providing for the Levite, orphan, the widow, all these things. Are those things repeated in the New Testament? Yes. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take a loan as a leaving wife? So people at that time, just like in the Catholic Church today, are saying, well, no, you don't have a right to a wife. So you, you don't have a right to all of this. You don't have a right to receive tithes. You don't have a right to live the gospel. You don't have a right to any of these things. Paul says, do I not have this right to take a wife? Now, Paul was single, and he even said in another scripture that he would recommend other single men to stay even as he was single, but nevertheless marry if you needed to, to abstain from lust. Uh, so he was single. But he said, I've got the right to take a wife. And it says, even as the rest of the apostles, because they were married, and the brothers of the Lord and of Cyprus, verse 6, or do only Bartimaeus and I have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Do we not pay the veterans? Do we not pay the military? Who plants a vineyard? And who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also says these things? For it's written in the law of Moses, you should not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So Paul is using Old Testament scriptures to validate that the Levite or the ministers can still live from the tithes and offerings of the faithful. Even though it don't say the word tithe here, it's implied that the ministers is still living from the free will God or tithes, whatever, all the money that's coming in. You should not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake, it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things. In other words, I'm not going to collect tithes from you. I'm not going to ask the money from you. I'm not going to do those things because then you would accuse me. That's exactly what was going on. That's exactly what Paul knew would happen. So he's saying, I reserve the right. It's legal. It's okay. But I ain't going to take the money because then you would falsely accuse me. As you keep reading, verse 13, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. There is still a need for the Levites. There is uh, for a financial need. That financial, financial need was not done away by the blood. The financial need is not done away with by the Holy Spirit. The need 
for these ministers of God who are laboring in the gospel is still there, and it still must be met. How is it going to be met? Everybody just give her as much they want. They'll starve to death. It's a nice ideal to think that we could all give whatever we want to, not be a requirement of a 10%, and to think that there would be enough coming into the house of God. But that's not reality. If we're really, 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 really honest with ourselves about the needs of the ministry, the needs of the orphan, the widow, the poor, the needy, the hungry, the sick, the afflicted, and the gospel and Bibles and so forth, and to think all that's going to be met, it's not even met by one tithe. It takes three tithes to do it. It's not even met by one tithe. How are we going to think we just give whatever we want? It's not even met by one tithe. Verse 15. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done in, in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, but woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will I have a stewardship entrusted in me, what then is my reward? that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So he's not preaching against it. He's just saying, I'm not going to do it because that I know what's going to be accused. So I don't stand here today thinking, how can I get more money? How can I get money? How can I get money? That is not my purpose in the least, God knows my heart, God knows my mind. That's not the purpose in the least. But if it's the second Passover, am I not going to explain what second Passover is about? If it's coming up toward Pentecost, am I not going to explain that God uh, instructs us to give a free will offering of any amount on Pentecost and on the Feast of Tabernacles and on Passover? Am I not going to instruct what the scriptures say about any of these things in fear? No. I still have the responsibility to preach the gospel, the full gospel, from A to Z, from Genesis to Revelation. Let's look at 2, uh, two Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Two Corinthians chapter 9. For it is uh, superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Archia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. For I have sent the brethren in order that your boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with you, come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to, you, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. Verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren 
that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. For this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So, what is the spiritual principle behind saying, I don't have to have the mind frame. I don't have to give 10%. All I can afford is 3% this month or 8% this month. And all I want to give is 8% this month. Well, all I need to give is 10, 8%. Therefore, all I need to give is any amount. So, but I'm doing it. So that's it. And uh, what kind of mind frame is that? Is that a mind frame of sowing sparingly or sowing bountifully? I would say that's a mind frame of sowing sparingly. Trying the easy way out, trying to limit the amount of help that you want to give. Verse 7, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So is this saying that there's not a requirement of the amount? Or is it saying that when we give, it should be free-heartedly, that it should be even without limit, you know, that it should be uh, in the heart and attitude of wanting to give. So what's the attitude of saying I don't have to give 10%? Verse 8, Paul says, For God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiently in everything you may have abundance for every good deed as it is written. In other words, God will make a way. We always try to say God ain't going to make a way or whatever. Well, I can't do this, I can't do that. God will make a way if we freely give and try and not try to hinder what he wants us to do. Let's look at Galatians 6. Just a few pages to the right. Galatians 6. Verse 6. Galatians 6, verse The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be mocked. I mean, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. For the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, of course, that is saying that if we live according to the flesh, we're going to die according to the flesh. If we live according to the Holy Spirit, we will live according to the Holy Spirit and have eternal life. But what else is it saying, considering the previous verse? And the following verses, let's keep reading. Verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, 
for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are the household of faith. So the context of the previous verse and in the, in the following verse is doing good, doing alms, doing good things, giving to the Levite. Verse 6, the one who is taught, the members of the congregation, the word, is to share all good things with the one who teaches him, given to the Levite. So the spiritual principle, even though it doesn't say exactly 10%, the spiritual principle is still there that we need to do these things. So they're not done away with by the blood of the Holy Spirit. These things are still needful. But people again try to say, but it doesn't say 10%. Again, I say, where does it say 10% is done away with? Prove to me, show me where it says 10% is done away with. And did Hebrews not say that Abraham paid 10% a tithe, a tenth, it says, even without the requirement of Moses? And how much more should we be so much more faithful than that? Look at 1 Timothy 5. Verse 16. 1 Timothy 5, verse 16. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. So there's a structure that certain people should take care of certain people, and then verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says that you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Then it talks about false accusations and so forth. So is that talking about giving to the Levite? Absolutely. That's talking about giving to the priests, to the ministers, so forth like that. But we should also give to the widows, the orphans. We know that that's pure religion. All these things still exist. Now let's look at Acts 4. Look at Acts chapter 4. Verse 32. Acts 4, verse 32. Now, this is very prevalent, I mean, uh, relevant to our day and time because of the great tribulation that's about to come upon us. This is very, very, very relevant. Verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds to the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And we know what happened. Joseph, now Joseph, the Levite of Siberian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. 
and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Ananias and Sapphira said they gave all to God, and they didn't, and they lied to the church, and they fell backward and died. All right, so notice here in these verses that in that day and time, these people, they didn't, they, what was their attitude? Was their attitude that they didn't want to give a tithe? They gave everything. They gave everything. They didn't hold back. Everything was laid at the apostles' feet. Then what happened? The apostles distributed it back out to the congregation, right back out to the same people that had just gave, distributed it to the needs of the people according to what was necessary for each need. So people are like, but then if I do first tithe, and then if I save back a second tithe for the feast days, and a third tithe for the orphans and widows and needy and sick and, you know, the afflicted, then I'm not going to have enough money for my lecture, my rent, my food, whatever, my car payment, whatever. So what is the solution? This. If we're not sending these tithes to Joel Holston, if we're not sending these tithes to somebody a thousand miles away that we don't know, you know, don't know nothing about, and we'll never hear from again, you know? And they don't even, they're not even the one that opened the envelope. Somebody sitting at a desk among a hundred people in a room opening up all this money. That's exactly what happened. Yeah? Well, then, yeah, you just throw your money away. But if you're a member of that congregation of Acts chapter 4, and you just sold your house and gave all the money to the apostles, and then you don't have your needs, what's going to happen? The church is going to meet your needs. What is the money supposed to be for? The needs of the people. The money is supposed to be for the needs of the church, of the Levi and of the members, of all the needs of the church that the church is taken care of. If we do our part, pray about it, fast about who to give it to, and I'm not trying to get money, but I'm trying to preach the scripture. And if we were to give to the local congregation, people you know, people you trust, and they give the money back out and say, here's your money for gas today. Here's money for gas this month. Here's money to help you with your electric bill. <coughs> here's some groceries, whatever. Being problem solved. Yes, it's distributed, right, you know. Probably ain't solved if it's not distributed right. But if if the if the ministers are doing their job, doing it right, and you make that need known, you know, you can't just be sitting in your house grumbling and mumbling and saying they're not taking care of me if you didn't make it known. But if you make it known, then it's the responsibility for them to distribute the money right back to you. You're just exchanging hands again. This is going to be really important in the Great Tribulation because do we think that if we're going to go into the wilderness and say, this is mine, you can't touch it, you can't have it. No. What we need to do for those that go into the wilderness, we need to be like, this is 
the storeroom for all the kitchen stuff. This is the storeroom for all the, the toiletry stuff, so on, so on. This is the tent, whatever, for those supplies. And everybody that comes, put it in those storerooms, and you know, and person A and person B and person C brings all the kitchen stuff into the kitchen and surrender it to the wilderness, surrender it to the whole congregation. And then we assign a couple of cooks to come in and use all the supplies for that, right? So this is going to be very important. <clears throat> so I believe God is using this first, second, and third type situation to help us realize that <clears throat> excuse me, that we need to consider a bigger picture. We need to consider a bigger picture. The bigger picture is, it's not me trying to pay my bills. The bigger picture is, it's me, my brother, and my sister, and my other brother, and my other sister, all trying to serve God. And all of us trying to get to where we need to get and putting others before ourselves. We need to see the bigger picture. Now let's look at Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 19. We know this verse very well. Matthew six nineteen. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried or overly anxious about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or for your body as what you're going to put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Sodom in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into a furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, do not worry then, saying what we eat, what we drink, what we wear for clothing. The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, your heavenly Father knows what need of all these things. Verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day is enough trouble. So we may think, well, what about all of our prepping? 
If I do a first and a second and a third, what about all this prepping? I can't, I can't afford to get back and do this. Don't worry about tomorrow. Yes, we need to prep. But if everything is structured right and if everybody is obedient, if the chain ain't broken and every link of the chain is doing right, it would work if we obey God. It's not going to go against us. It will work if we obey God. Put God first and and um, realize that if we follow God's structure, it will come out for the best. So, I was up all night. Not all night, but I was up into the middle of the night and I was wrestling with the Lord, basically. And I was like, am I trying to bring people under the old covenant? Am I trying to bring people under a burden, an unnecessary burden? And I could not, and I truly, 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 truly examined myself. And I could not come to any other conclusion other than I've got to teach this. And I have to be obedient to it myself. I've not been saving back my second tithe. I've not been doing the third tithe as far as like um, saying, writing down or budgeting, because I do always write down budget every time. And I don't say, here is exactly 10% and this much must go to this. You know what I do usually is this is my total income for the month, and this is my total expenses for the month, and then do what I have to do, right? But I have looked at that list, I have looked at that budget, and seen that not only does 10% or 20% or 30%, but much more than that has gone to the orphans, the widows, the sick, and the afflicted. So in principle, I've been following it, but I need to examine myself every month and make sure that I am fitting these requirements because I don't want to think or come to find out later that I didn't take care of the orphans and widows and sick and afflicted or that I left it up to chance about how much I gave, but that I was following the requirements. Um, and Brittany can testify to you how many times how that situations were made aware to us to where people needed food or medicine or supplies. And I'm not trying to boast of ourselves. I'm just giving a testimony of how God works. That when we met those needs of those people, God met our needs more than enough. God returned the blessing back to us. And I'm not going to say if you give a certain amount that you're going to get a certain amount back. I'm not saying that. But if you take care of the people, do what we're supposed to do, and not grudgingly, but willingly put others ahead of ourselves, God is going to give it back to us, and God will meet our needs. And me and Brittany live in testimony of that. Of so many times I could have said, I can't afford it. So many times I could very easily said, I can't do that. 
and did it anyway, and God brought it right back to him. Let's look at Matthew 22. look at verse 17. Matthew 22, verse 17. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrite? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a Sartarius, whatever coin that is. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? And they said to him, Caesar. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Did Jesus say, You don't have to pay your taxes? No. Some people I know would think you don't have to pay your taxes because we're not, or they say we're not citizens of man's government, and we are. We're dual, we're dual. Dual citizenship. We're, we're citizens of this earth, unfortunately. And we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And we have to render to Caesar's what Caesar's and to God things. Now, God's everything belongs to him. But it's also, if we really, really, really examine this verse, really think about it, really think about this verse, I believe this verse in the Holy Spirit confirms what I'm saying, that we're supposed to give to God what is God, as citizens, as faithful, loyal citizens to the king, to the kingship, to the government, to the kingdom, what belongs to the kingdom. So, those are my main points. And I know we have lots of questions and everything. And also, just encourage you, I know this is a test. It's a test for me. I have to admit, it's a test for me. And uh, I've already talked to Brittany about it before we got here and before we left today. And and we agreed that we're going to do this, that we're going to do start the second time and third time, that we're going to, we're going to do it. And uh, perhaps that we can uh, even host and, and stuff like that and start hosting all three of the pilgrimages provide that service, that ministry to the people. So we have to pray about that and uh, we trust God. If we do our part, God's going to do his part. We don't have to worry about provision. The only thing we have to worry about is is this still required? Is this still the will of God? Is it expressly done away? I don't believe it's expressly done away. What is the fruit, good or bad? I believe the fruit is all good. Will it break us and damage us and hinder us in any way, shape, or form? I don't believe it will. Um, is there New Testament scriptures confirming that these needs are still there? Is the needs done away with by the blood of the Holy Spirit? What was the spiritual principle behind the first tithe, the second tithe, the third tithe? 
I think the spiritual principle still exists for all three types. And that if we were to obey these things, that the fruit would be all good. So then it's between you and God. I'm not going to lay a basket out except for on Pentecost, because I believe I should do that on Pentecost. And, uh, but I'm not going to like, keep track of who does what and what. And also, I don't believe that it all has to be money. I don't believe that you've got to present every week or every month or whatever a certain amount of money. I believe that you can take the tithe, the first tithe, which goes to God, and pay that through helping somebody holding a sign on the street. You can do that through giving to daily bread. You can do that through printing tracts and distributing tracts in the community. That goes to God. When you print a tract, distribute in the community, or you provide this, or you provide that, or you provide this, or you provide that, to somebody in need, whether it's first, second, or third time, that's given to God just as much as if you just bring it here. So how can I keep track of it? I don't know what you do in your you know, personal life. And you also pay tithes when you bring food here. That's a tithe, whether you consider it a tithe or not. It's a tithe. And so whether we call it alms or whether we call it a first tithe or whether we call it a second tithe, whether we call it a third tithe, whether we call it freely given, whether we call it offering. Let's not get caught up so much on words and titles and all this stuff. And let us just give. You know, let's just take care of the needs. Let's take care of the poor. Let's take care of the feast. Let's take care of all the needs of the ministry and of the service to the people. And if it adds up, to more than 30, good. But I think that it's necessary to do a minimum amount so that we are making for sure that we're sufficient in our arms. I think it's a good guideline to go by, if anything else. As far as the second tide, the second tide, you save back yourself for your use of all of the feasts all year long take care of your feast needs. As far as the third tide, the third tide is only paid on the third year and the sixth year. You don't pay it every year. And that goes taking care of the needy. Whereas the first tide takes care of the ministry, the work of God, the evangelism, second tide to the feast, all the feast needs, and third tide the poor and the needy, the sick, the afflicted, the widow, the orphans, those in need. Okay, we're going to turn the internet off so we can have personal questions. And I thank everybody for listening and give a shout out to Lisa and uh, praying for your travels and your family and everybody. We appreciate everybody's listening. And and everybody, if you are um, sincere and want to serve the Lord and want to come be with us, we welcome people out of state and here in town and in our local community and wherever you may be. We welcome you to the services. And all you got to do is contact me on the website, and I'll be glad to let you know where we're meeting outdoors that particular week. Coming up, Pentecost, uh, we'll be meeting Panther Creek State Park, May 24th, Sunday, two days in a row. But the first day, I'm not sure we're going to be meeting that yet. On the 24th, we'll be at the park. So we'll turn the Internet off and conclude the broadcast, and we're going to take questions. All this in Jesus' name. Amen.
What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try.